Heavenly Father, as we come here this morning, this message is super important for all of us. The ability to handle your word is important. Father, we just pray that you would use me this morning to be able to preach your gospel, be able to preach your word. I just pray that you open everyone's hearts to accept your word. We ask these things in your precious name. Amen. There was a professional boxer who was recently uh, converted to Christ. He was a follower of Jesus. But he struggled. He was, he was struggling with the fact that, that he hits people for a living. He, he's like, is it wrong? Is, is it okay for me to hit people? So being the new Christian, he goes to the elders of his church. And he asks them, and he says, is it okay to continue to box to be able to hit people? So one of the elders uh, says to him, I don't see anything wrong with it. The Bible says that it is better to give than to receive. <laughs> so we see, in all seriousness, when we wrongfully look and try to add to and mishandle the Word of God, it's very dangerous and, and it's very wrong. It's wrong to mishandle the Word of God. But we see the key... To rightfully handling the Word of God is context, 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 which is the title of my sermon today. Uh, today we're going to go over the proper way to do that, the proper way to handle the Word of God, and the proper way to be able to interpret it. Interpret what it's saying. What is the passage saying? What is the passage of the Bible saying? Kind of a key verse for us today is 2 Timothy 2.15. It says, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved... A worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightfully handling the word of truth. So that is the key verse for today. I want you to remember that. To do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightfully handling the word of truth. So first thing we're going to do is go over how, how we're going to do that. How are we going to be able to handle the word of God? Then, the second part of the sermon, we're going to talk about the most misused and most misunderstood verses in all the Bible. That's what we're going to do today. And I might even make a Heisman Trophy mad at me later on. You guys get hit, you may figure out who that is. Uh, but first of all, we're going to kind of go through a, a seminary type class. Uh, the first word we're going to talk about is the word hermeneutics. Hermeneutics is the study of the principles of interpreting God's word. It's kind of a big word, uh, but it's important. It is the study of the principles of interpreting God's word. The thing with hermeneutics is it is a discipline, a science, and an art. First thing, hermeneutics is a discipline. First thing we study, when we study God's word, we must conduct within the context of what it says. We have to understand the context of the passage. It's something very important. We have to have full dependence Upon God to reveal what the text is saying. We can't put ourselves into the text, as we'll go over later. We should, excuse me, tongue tied. We should look to truly understand God's word. Let it sink into our hearts. Something a lot of people try to do is they try to conquer the, the text, conquer what it says. Well, I'm going to figure out what it says and what I, what I think it says. But we will let the Word of God seek into our hearts, and the Holy Spirit is going to reveal to us what it's supposed to say. We have to, we have to let it seek in to understand it, to transform our hearts. You see, that's the key, to transform our hearts. That's what the Word of God does. It transforms our hearts. If I go and try to conquer the text, it's only what I want. But if we truly let it soak into our hearts and let, let God reveal it to us, then that's the key. We see hermeneutics is a science. When we properly handle the word, there is a process to understand the text. How do you do that? Through study. Study is important. And other techniques that we will go over later in this sermon to be able to handle God's word better. You see, there's techniques that you can do to understand the text better. That's what we're going to go over today. And we see hermeneutics is an art. When we get the process and we have the discipline... To handle the word, we start to get a feel for the process, start to get a feel of how to properly handle the word of God. We start to gain skills. We recognize what the text says, and most importantly, what it doesn't say. You get that? It's important to know what it says, but it's also important to know what it doesn't say. 
You see, that proves to be so beneficial to our study, everyday study in God's Word. When we, when we have the right process, when we have the right discipline, we have the right science, and when, when we learn the art of hermeneutics. We see the purpose for hermeneutics is to understand what the Scripture communicated to the original audience and the principles and applications there for us. That's key if you want to write that down. The purpose for hermeneutics is to understand what the Scripture communicated to the original audience and the principles and applications are there for us. That's not always understood by us. What the original audience of the text was, that's important. And like the key to everything else, the key to, to learn and to study the Word of God is to be in line with God. We have to be in line with His God so He can reveal what His Word is to us. We have to be in line with God. And again, the key to know what it is and what it isn't really saying. That is key. To understand what it is and what it is not saying. Now we're going to go over a few more of the, the, the big uh, theology words that we're going to talk about. The first one is exegesis. It's kind of a big word, but exegesis is the exposition or explanation of a text based on a careful and objective analysis. So in layman term, what that's saying is, is to lead out or to take out. You're taking out what the scripture is saying. So if you're properly, as they say, exegeting the scripture, you're going to take out what it, what it truly is saying. That's what the word exegesis is. You see, exegesis does justice to the text. And something also important, this, the text speaks for itself. It doesn't need our, our, our opinion on what the text says. This speaks for itself, right? Does it need us to tell us anything? This speaks for itself. You see, proper exegesis allows us to agree with the Bible. There are four keys to exegesis. The first one is observation. What does the passage say? The second one is interpretation. What does the passage mean? The third one is correlation. How does the passage relate to the rest of the Bible? Then the fourth one is application. Then when we see how the passage can affect our lives. You see that order? We have observation, interpretation, correlation, and application. You see, the key to exegesis is it takes time. You have to study. You have to actually take time out of your day to study the text. It takes effort. Exegesis is good. Exegesis is what we should be doing every day to the Word of God. That is properly handling the Word of God. Now we go to the opposite of exegesis. Now we have the word eisegesis. Eisegesis is a mishandling of a text and often leads to a misinterpretation. You see, we talked about with exegesis that was what you're properly studying the text, seeing what the text says, looking at different things. But with eisegesis, is based on a subjective, non-analytical reading of the text. It literally means to lead into or to put into the text. You see, that means we're, they're putting something in the text when it's not there. So we should be taking out of the text in exegesis, but eisegesis says you're going to put your ideas into the text. And that, that's a danger. When you inject your own ideas into the Scripture, is that good? No, it's not good. We can't put whatever we want into it. You see, the key to eisegesis is concerned with making a point. You'll hear sermons of pastors that they want to put their point in, in the text no matter what it is. They can take any scripture and make it sound the way they want it to do. They want to make their point stick, so they're going to do it no matter what it takes to the text. There's three wrong keys to eisegesis. One is imagination. What idea do I want to present? You see that key? What do I want to present? Number two, exploitation. What the passage seems to fit with my idea. Then the third one is application. What does my idea mean? Do you see all that? You're, I and my, do you see? It's not about the word of God, it's about what I want. 
There is no examination of the text when you, when you eisegete something. Um, there's no uh, relating it to the rest of the scripture. There's no cross-referencing. There's no saying, well, what does it say in other parts of the Bible? There is none. You see, with eisegesis, the, the scripture is only a prop. It's only a prop to fit their idea. So, should you exegete something or eisegete? Exegesis is the way we should go. And this next one we're going to talk about isn't technically a term, uh, but I'm kind of a discernment geek type, polemical geek type thing. But this term is used often, and and it kind of combines two things. It's called narcissism, where you combine narcissism and eisegesis, right? Uh, The definition for this is where one reads oneself into the text and reads himself into the Bible and writes God out of it. You see, we talked about exegesis takes time. It takes time to properly study the Word of God. And narcissism, you're just putting yourself into it. You're saying, I'm going to put myself into this story. Instead of what John 5, 39 through 40 says, you study the scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. These are the very scriptures that testify about me, yet you refuse to come to me and have life. Now, Jesus, you may have never heard of it, but I'll be willing to say that all of us, this next story that I'm going to talk about, have all been guilty of this, right? We've all said in sermons before about the story of David and Goliath, right? We know the story. Have you ever heard a sermon where it says, you are David, right? And Goliath is your sin. Have you heard that before? Is that right? No, it's not. David isn't us. We're not David. You're not David. Do you see? And your sin isn't Goliath. You see, who is David? Who does all the Bible point to? Jesus, right? You see, we put ourselves into the story. The story of David and Goliath is all about Jesus. Points to Jesus. Jesus is David. And and Goliath is, is a sin and death. And we're in the background. And Jesus conquers sin and death. You see, all of the Bible points to Jesus. We've added ourselves into that story. We've, we've, we've been guilty of Jesus. Again, we're not David. It's not about us. Jesus is the better David. He is the better Savior. You see, when we go over a few terms, we see that we put ourselves into the story, and we don't need to be there. The Bible's not about us. Now that we went over a few terms in the Bible study process, let's go over a few ways we can better study and be able to study and handle the Word of God. There's a few things that you have to do to properly be able to study the Word of God. First one is you have to look at the historical context of the the passage. Who said something? Who wrote it? Where was the person who said it? When was the book written? What is the theme of the book? You see, these things are important to know when you're reading a passage. You have to know the historical context of the situation that's going on. The second one we see is style or literary, the style of what is written. Uh, there's all kinds of them throughout the Bible. You have your, the law, you have poetry, you have prophecy, you have the wisdom books, you have the gospel, you have the parables, the epistles, and you have the apocalyptic uh, stuff in Revelation. You see, when we're studying something, you have to know the difference. The gospel is different than the book of poetry, right? The prophecy is different than the, than the, the epistles. We see that they're different. We have to know the different styles to be able to understand the text. Then the third one is observation. We have to know the details of the passage. We have to be aware of everything that is going on. We have to ask questions. Uh, Heidi told me this a long time ago. The who, what, when, where, why, and how. We have to ask all those questions when we're properly studying the Word of God. And something that is very important, and, and those that don't know probably how to study or have never been taught this, the key that when you're looking at the passage is you have to look at the language. You see, there's Greek, Hebrew, and Aramaic. 
you have to look at the language because their language and English language are completely different. They mean different things. Um, the word love, we say, well, I love hamburgers and I love my wife. You see, there's a difference. You have to know which one you're using. You have to look at the grammar of the text. That's a big deal. And I like this illustration. So you have your text that you're looking at. So you have it there. Then you have to broaden it out. What is that, that, that chapter talking about? Then you have to broaden it out more. What is, what is the rest of the book talking about? You have to look at things in context. You start out small, then expand out. Then we get to the application stage. You look at how the text addresses the audience. Remember we talked about the original audience. That's important. Again, the Bible is, is written to us. I'm sorry, the Bible isn't written to us, but for us. Do you see that? The original text, the book of Romans wasn't written to us, right? The book of uh, Philippians wasn't written to us, but it's for us. We have to see how did it make a difference to them. Then we start to see similar situations in our own lives. And ask God how he would apply that to our lives. Once we know what the principle is and how it was used, we need to make sure that it lines up with Christ. We lines up with the rest of the scripture. If you're reading a text and you get some idea of what it means and it goes against and contrary to the Bible, is that right? No, we have to make sure everything lines up. Two keys to proper biblical interpretation is that it teaches us to correctly interpret scriptures and apply its truth to our lives. The second one is it helps us grow confident to study God's word. We talked about that it takes effort, but realistically, it is harder to in, insert yourself into a text and actually study the Word of God, right? It, it's harder for me to insert my idea into a text, right? It's harder that way. Listen, we don't all have to be super scholar theologians to be able to properly handle God's Word. You don't have to be. But as I talked about with everything else, we have to rely on who? God to help us understand the text. And it's important we have to say this with humility and full dependence on him. You see, we have to come to God with humility to be able to understand the text. And again, realize it's not about us. Now that our sermon, uh, seminary class is over, we're going to get to the, to the fun part. Uh, today we're going to look at four different verses that are the most misused. And most misunderstood uh, scriptures in all the Bible. This is pretty exciting. I've been wanting to do this for a long time. Me and Keith, a while back, we were talking about different things to preach on. And um, he said, well, why don't you just take a whole Sunday and preach on all of it? Uh, so we got four things. I could have went over 20. I had a book I just read that probably had like 25 different verses that we could have went over. And there's a lot more than that. But uh, I picked four that I think we all know. And are pretty misused and misunderstood. So we're going to look at those. The first verse we're going to look at, and we're going to come out swinging. We're going to swing for the fences. Uh, and probably talk about probably the most misused verse in all the Bible. That is Matthew 7, 1. It says, do not judge or you too will be judged. Has anybody ever heard that one before? No, we never heard that, right? No, we hear it all the time. Uh, this might be the most misquoted and misused verse in all of the Bible. Uh, these words by Jesus are used a lot. Uh, for those that are Christians, we hear it all the time. And even for those that, that, you know, aren't Christians, use this verse all the time, right? You can't judge me, don't judge me, right? Uh, the problem with this verse is it is used as a shield. It's usually a shield for sin. It is like a barrier to keep others out of your business, Right? Allowing you to say, I'm going to justify my sin. You can't, you can't come near me. You can't judge me, right? We use that as a shield. We try to justify our actions and say, well, you can't judge me. We don't have any responsibility or accountability when it comes to that. Because you can't judge me. You've heard terms like, aren't we all sinners? Have you heard that before? You can't judge me. We're all sinners. What well, gives you the right to make moral judgment on me? You'd even say, well, you can't regulate morality. You've heard that term before? 
But look at our laws when it says you can't kill somebody or what? You go to jail, right? You can't steal from somebody. If you steal from somebody, you go to jail, right? That sounds like you're regulating morality to me, right? You can't hit somebody and not get in trouble. Then you hear this all the time. Isn't that God's job to judge me? Do you hear that one? I hear it all the time. Isn't that God's job to judge me? But the key is when taken out of context, it is assumed that this verse is advocating hands-off approach to moral responsibility. If you take this out of context, you say, well, there's no moral responsibility that I have to take. I mean, you can never make judgments about me, never make judgments about my sin. But like we talked about, when you put it into context and look and see who Jesus is talking to, knowing the audience that Jesus was talking to at the time, you'll see that Jesus is saying quite the opposite. We see Jesus laying it heavy to the Pharisees. He was rebuking their hypocrisy. You see, that the Pharisees were, 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 were quick to see the sin in everybody else's life. But did they see it in their own life? They didn't, did they? They were hypocrites. They didn't hold themselves accountable. They just called other people's sins out. And we see Matthew 7, 1 as part of the Sermon on the Mount. We did that a while back. We went through the Sermon on the Mount. It's a sermon where Jesus teaches what it meant to live a faithful life, a committed follower of Jesus, a practical teaching on how to live as a Christian. Jesus gave two distinct commands in this little section that we're talking about. It said, stop judging, judging others in a hypocritical fashion and get the sin out of your own life first. I want you to see that Jesus is not suggesting that we have no right to make moral judgments about human behavior. He is not saying that. He's not saying that we don't have a right to hold each other accountable. But we can't be hypocrites. We have to get the log out of our own eye first. Galatians 6, 1 and 2 says, Brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in sin, you who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently. But watch yourselves, or you also may be tempted Carry each other's burdens, and in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. Do you see? We have to hold each other accountable. If I, if I screw up, I want you guys to come to me. We can do that. It's okay. We see it, the misuse of this verse, a lot of people don't even know what the context of the text is. They don't know the Sermon on the Mount. They just hear, do not judge. Or you two will be judged. They hear that. People who aren't Christians know that verse. But they don't know the context. Look, saying, you have no right to judge or say anything about my sins. Again, seeks to avoid all of accountability. And responsibility. That seems to be a case in our society today. We we don't seek accountability or responsibility for anything. For our own actions. We don't do that. You see, if we say do not judge as a way of disguising ourselves, we're going against the rest of the Bible. We just read in Galatians 6 what it says. It says, brothers and sisters, if someone is called in sin, you who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently. Do you see that? We are to do that. As a church, if we see someone sinning and going against God, we are to go to them, but go to them gently. That's okay. And that's a key. That's why we always interpret Scripture with Scripture. That's another key that I want you guys to write down. We always interpret Scripture with Scripture. There are no contradictions in the Bible. People will tell you that there are, but there isn't any. If you look at the context and you go back, you cross-reference other Scriptures, there are no contradictions in the Bible. None. The second verse we're going to talk about today... um, Everybody has a life verse in here, right? We hear these all the time. The life verses, a verse that stands out above all the other verses. Uh, uh, we have bags with verses on them, cups, and all these things that you can get Lifeway in a Bible store. Uh, they all have these verses on We're going to go over a bunch of them today. The verse we're going to look at t- next is Jeremiah 29, 11. It says, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. 
We know this verse, right? Does anybody have a bag or a cup with this verse on it? Anybody? I'm sure you do, right? You have this verse. We all know this verse. It's easy to remember. Uh, It's not hard to understand. It's a great promise. Prosperity, protection, and hope. We love this verse, right? If we just do what God wants us to do, and we do everything that He wants us to do, everything is going to be peachy, right? If I seek Him with all of my heart, everything's going to go okay. I'm going to prosper. Is this the right interpretation of this verse? No is the answer. But we see, to put God on the hook for a life of prosperity and blessing that fits my lifestyle, is that wrong? Is it wrong to put God on the hook and say, if if I'm not blessed with everything I want, if I'm not prosperous in everything, is God on the hook for that? Is that okay? You see, the answer lies in a proper exegetical perspective of Jeremiah 29 11. And a key that we talked about earlier, we have to look at the historical context of the situation going on in this book of Jeremiah. We see they were in a season of despair. God's people were in a season of despair. Life was hard. It wasn't all peaches and roses and butterflies. It wasn't that way. God's people were struggling. Their kings were filled with corruption. The people disobeyed God by going to the the surrounding communities and intermarrying with these people. And when they did that, these people led them astray to worship false gods. They broke the covenant that God had made through Moses. And when this would happen, God would bring up, uh, would have enough, and he would say he would raise up a prophet from among the people, a spokesperson of God. And that's where we get Jeremiah. Jeremiah had a daunting task. We think life's hard at times. We think it's tough. Jeremiah had to proclaim judgment and wrath upon the people of God. Do you think that would be easy? We think our jobs are tough. You, Jeremiah had to go tell the people that God's wrath was coming. You see, they were going to be conquered by their enemies. They were going to be carried off into slavery. For a long time, this wasn't a short period of time, a few days. It wasn't going to be that way. And Jeremiah was going to deliver this message. Another key to see here, but at this time there was false teachers around. There were false teachers preaching a different message. In Jeremiah 28, there was a prophet named Hananiah. He was preaching a softer message. He was preaching a prosperity message. And of course, who would be more popular at the time? Someone who said, oh, it's not going to be that bad. God's punishment isn't going to be that bad. It's only going to be a few years. Or Jeremiah said it's going to be 70 years. Who's going to be more popular? The false teacher, right? Does that sound familiar? The prosperity gospel is alive and well today. They tell you what you want to hear. They tell you that if you just do certain things, you're going to be blessed. Listen, God may never give me a, a church to preach at. May, he may, that may never happen. But one thing that I'll promise you is anytime that I'm up here, I'm not going to be soft. I'm not going to give you that prosperity gospel. I may bring you what the Word of God says, and you may like it and you may not. I may be popular, I may not. That's Okay. Jeremiah was bringing the truth. Hannah and I was bringing a softer message, bringing a prosperity gospel to the people. Who do you think went out? Did Hannah and I went out or, did, or did, did, did God went out? God went out, right? Hannah and I died. The prosperity was gone. Same goes today. Ultimately, when, when it all settles, the prosperity gospel won't mean nothing. Because the word of God is truth. And that matters. Truth matters. You see, people were going to die. It wasn't good. They were in a foreign land. They were slaves. They were displaced from where they they were comfortable. Jeremiah writes and pleads to the people. And listen, he gives them some good news. Even though they're in a horrible time, a rough time, it's not going to be easy. Please turn your Bibles to Jeremiah chapter 29, verses 10 through 14.
This is what the Lord says. When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my good promise to bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. Then you will call on me and come and pray to me, and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me. When you seek me with all your heart, I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back from captivity. I will gather you from all the nations and places where I have banished you, declares the Lord, and will, and will bring you back to the place from which I carried you into exile. So we see here that that's not talking about what we think that verse says, right? The first thing I want you to see is God is speaking to Israel. Do you see that? That's a promise to Israel. That's not an individual promise. That's not a promise to me that my life's going to be prosperous. That is to Israel. Not to one particular person. It's about his plan to restore his people. To prosper them and literally bring them back from slavery back. Do you see He's bringing them, he's literally going to bring them back from captivity. The second thing I want to see is this is a promise for God's people who exist, not now, not in the present, but how long? 70 years from now. Do you see that? The majority of the people that are there are going to die. They're going to be dead. They're not going to be able to see that promise. It's not going to be fulfilled in their lifetime. It's not a short-term thing where if I do everything, God's going to bless me and prosper me. That's not what it's saying. This is 70 years. Imagine 70 years from now. How many of us are going to be alive in 70 years? Not me. You see, it's not a right now kind of thing. Not a blessing for right now. They were in pain. This is directed to a future people, their children and grandchildren. So let me ask you this. Is this a life verse that we should be carrying around in our books and, 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 our, and our bags and things like that when we take it out of context? No. It's not about dreams and having a prosperous, smooth life. It's not what it's about. Does it say as long as I seek God with all my heart, everything is going to be okay? The writer of this book, Jeremiah, which is known as the weeping prophet, right? You ever heard that? Many scholars believe that he didn't have any converts at all. None. Can you imagine preaching God's word, being a prophet and seeing no one come to Christ? Or being a pastor and seeing no one come to Christ? But God is happy with him. He is doing what God has called him to do. What about missionaries that that live in these dangerous places and get killed all the time? Is their life blessed and prosperous to have the best life that, that they can have? They're doing what God has called them to do. What about those that, that are faithful, faithful members of Christ come to church and, and are serving the church and, and we get sick? Is that, is that blessed and prosperous? Is it difficult? Yes. But there is a spiritual hope. You see, with the people of Israel, that God was going to save his people. We cannot twist scripture around and make it fit the way we want it to. We can't say, oh, this says I'm going to have a prosperous and blessed life. All I got to do is just do what God says and everything's going to be okay. We can't twist scripture like that. We can't do it. The next verse that we're going to talk about. I really struggle which verse, third one of these to do. And then I thought, man, everybody knows this verse. And we're going to read Exodus 21, 23 through 25. It says, If there is serious injury, you are to take life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, bruise for bruise. All of us at one time or another, when we were a kid or as an adult, have said this, an eye for an eye, right? We've heard this all the time. As a kid, you said, he hit me, so I'm going to hit him back. Or he was mean to me, I'm going to be mean back. Or so-and-so yelled at me, so I'm going to yell back. The Bible says this is okay, right? Because it says an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. Right? We tend to always want to get revenge, don't we? If we're wronged in any way, we want to get revenge on that person. 
If someone hits me, I'm going to get up and hit them back, right? That's what we've all grew up with. What does God say? Vengeance is yours to get? He says, vengeance is mine, says the Lord, right? That's a hard thing to, to, to understand. When someone hits me, you want to get up and hit them back. Or if someone's mean to me, you want to be mean back. Romans twelve nineteen says, Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath, for it is written, It is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. Hebrews 10.30 says, For we know him who said, It is mine to avenge, and I will repay, and again the Lord will judge his people. So we see the idea of revenge. We shouldn't do that. We want to take things in our own hands. We want to fix it. But what does our Lord and Savior Jesus say? When someone hits you, what? Hit them back? Turn the other cheek. That's hard to do. But we love that it says in the Bible, an eye for an eye. That, that justifies me going to hit somebody because it says, an eye for an eye, two for a tooth, right? I've done that when I was younger. I've justified it. I've had arguments about it when I was younger, when I was a near Christian. Well, the Bible says an eye for an eye, two for a tooth. Because it talks about it in Leviticus, Exodus, and Deuteronomy. But look, it is always, most of the time, taken out of context. Most of the time. Even in Jesus' day, this was misused and misunderstood. You have to look at the original statement first used in Exodus 21. Um, we see here that the laws that God gave to Moses as a way to govern the people of Israel, right? Uh, when they were free from the Pharaoh in Egypt. Um, it talks about different crimes. It talks about particular punishments. And this is key. Even though God knew that they were going to screw up and sin against him. He knew that. But he also sought to protect individuals from excessive punishment. That's something we don't really understand in our culture. But where we get our laws and the idea of the punishment fitting the crime, this comes from the Bible. This comes from God. When justice was to be brought down, it, Jesus' idea was that it should be fair. The punishment should fit the crime. We all want that, right? We want the punishment to fit the crime. Uh, for example, if I'm driving down 65 and I get pulled over for going five over the speed limit and I get five years in jail, is, is it, does the punishment fit the crime? No, it doesn't. And that's what this was for. To avoid that type of justice, God made it clear that punishment was to fit the crime and not ever to exceed it. And that's where we get the term eye for an eye. That's not what we think it means, right? But that's God's idea of being just. But to go further in the text, within the passage, we see it talks about crimes of violence. If two men are fighting and hit a pregnant woman and she gives birth prematurely, but there is no serious injury, the offender must be fined whatever the husband demands of the court allows. You see? Okay, we see that. But if there is serious injury, you are to take life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand in hand, foot in foot, Burn for burn, wound for wound, bruise for bruise. We see that's the context of what we're reading. Jesus says this in the New Testament and affirms the limiting punishment. It was never, be, never meant to be a text of, well, I'm going to get revenge on someone, personal vengeance on somebody. That's not what it ever meant. Open up your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5, verses 38 through 42. This is Jesus speaking. He says, You have heard that it was said, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. If anyone forces you to go on one mile, go with him two miles. Get to the one who asks you and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. So if someone insults you and hurts you, we're supposed to not, not fight back, right? We're not supposed to hit them back. We're not supposed to insult them back. But we're supposed to react with kindness and say, you know, here, here's my other cheek. Here's my cloak if you want it. Reply with kindness or reply with gentleness. 
Romans 5, 8 says, while we were still sinners, Christ what? Died for us. You see, we were jerks, we sinned against God, but he died for us. And the last verse we're going to go over, and this is where I may get a Heisman Trophy mad at me. Uh, Tim Tebow, if you don't know, this is his uh, verse he always used on his uh, face. Um, Verses uh, Philippians 4.13, it says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Imagine yourself for a second, on Friday night, you're at a football game. Uh, two of the kids from North Bullet are playing in the, in the football game. They're one at each school, rival school. Uh, they both love God. They both come to church. Uh, they both know some Bible. But they both know this verse. They memorize this verse. They pray this verse before the game. And after a hard fall game, there can only be one winner, right? In a football game. So the boy who wins, rides home and is like, man, God is awesome. He gave me the strength to win this game. He gave me so much strength to win. Then the kid that lost is riding home and says, man, I thought God strengthens me. Where was he at? He failed me. I guess his strength is not as strong as I thought. He said, what a joke. You see what happens when we, when we make the scripture think what it, we want it to say? You see, both these boys knew this verse. They said, oh, I can do all things in Christ through strengths in me. Do you see that? One is left in despair. One is in joy. It's the same verse. Is that what it means? Am I weak if I can't do it? Is God weak if it doesn't happen? When we take the verses out of context and try to use it how we see fit, we become delusioned with God. We break our faith because when it doesn't, when it doesn't meet our needs and happens what we want it to, what do we do? We get mad at God. God said he was going to do this and he doesn't. You see the snowball effect from that? When we don't think God does something we want to, we get mad and we break the faith in him when we get upset with God. Then how do we act from there? Not good. So is it physical strength? Is it emotional strength? Is it spiritual strength? What is it talking about? First off, we kind of have to see in the book of Philippians what it's about. Paul's in prison. He is under house arrest. He has an uncertain future. Not sure if he's going to be executed or not. That's kind of scary, right? Not know if you're going to die or not. The church of Philippi grew and was healthy. They would send help financially to Paul. He was thanking them in his letter. Uh, it was a word of update and encouragement and exhortation. He wants them to be unified as a church. But we see they love God, but they put a lot of confidence in their own abilities. They, put, they love God, but they had to put confidence in their own abilities to live the Christian life. They were getting agitated with each other. They were like, they were worried about, do they have enough money? Do we have enough things? Are we going to be okay? They were worried about themselves. They weren't living by faith. They weren't standing firm in the faith. Philippians 4.19 says, And my God will meet all your needs according to the riches of his glory in Christ. So we see they weren't focused on God. They weren't saying, God, you're going to fulfill all my needs. No matter what it is, you're going to fulfill them all. As we've seen with the life of Paul, an easy life wasn't guaranteed. It wasn't going to be comfortable. His life wasn't comfortable. Something we have to see, the key is not about the here and now. It wasn't in Paul's life and it isn't in our life. It's about the future. Turn with me to Philippians 4, 10 through 12. says, I rejoice greatly in the Lord that at last you renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. I'm not saying this because I am in need, for I have learned to be content, whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. So I want you to see the key to this verse is contentment. That's the key in this verse. I want you to write it down. It is contentment. 
No matter what your situation is life, learn to be content. You can be content in all situations. Anything going through your life, you can be content. Paul was the possibility of dying. He was content. Paul has been rich. He was content. He's been poor. He was content. God is the one who gives you the spiritual strength to be content. I can't do it. I struggle with this all the time, being content with what I have. Is there enough money in the bank? Is there enough stuff for, for the kids? Is there enough things for a house? I worry about that all the time. But God can give me the strength to do that, to be content with what I have. You see, God gave the power and strength for Paul not to worry. If you were about to die, not sure if you would be die or not, you're in prison, would you worry at all? Probably yes. But through the strength of God, you don't have to worry. We don't have to worry. Paul had the strength through God, not himself, through God, to not worry about if he lived or died. Do you see that? He didn't worry about if he was going to live or die because he had the strength of God. How great would it be if we just trusted in what God gave us? How great would it be if we just trusted enough in everything that we have been given that he will provide the strength for whatever we were going through? Well, we would be more joyful. There would be more things to be happy about. We would be more optimistic in life. Are we optimistic? As a people, most of the time we're pessimistic. We're not optimistic and not focused on the spiritual stuff. But the stuff that we have, stuff that we got to have. And this is key. We can rest in the thought that he will provide through his strength. Through all things. Whether good or bad. So this verse isn't about me standing up here in front of a church full of people and being nervous to give me a strength to get through it. That's not what it's about. It's not about a sports game or an athletic game, if I'm going to win or not. That's not what it's about. The context is about having the strength to be content when we are facing things in our life, when things are bleak. When we don't know what's going to happen, when we find out a loved one has cancer, when we find out we lost a job, when we find out this happens, that's when we are to be content through God. It's about having faith in Him. The thing is, he always provides for his people. Always. It may not be what we think, what we want, but he always provides for us. God knows and sees our needs before we even, even think about it. He knows them. You can be content and find strength to endure all things. You see that? Because who? Christ strengthens us. That's what it's about. As I invite the band to come up. We see in 2 Timothy 2.15 tells us we are to rightfully handle the word of God. Guys, this is important. Listen to me. If you don't hear anything else, this is important. Theology matters. You know what theology means? It's the study of God. Listen, not everybody studies theology. Not everybody wants to study theology. Not everybody has good theology. Theology is the study of God. Isn't that important? Shouldn't we all study about the God that we love and put our life and trust in? Shouldn't we study that? Listen, when we don't properly handle God's word and add to or put ourselves into his, to the text, that is wrong. Bad theology says the Bible is all about you. Bad theology says and downgrades the, the power and sovereignty of God. Bad theology teaches sin isn't that big of a deal. Bad theology says God's not going to punish you. It's not going to be that bad. Listen, bad theology sends people straight to hell. That's what bad theology does. But listen, there doesn't have to be bad theology. When we properly handle and exegete the Bible right... We get good theology. Good theology says the Bible is all about and points to who? Jesus. Good theology is all about him. It's not about us. 
Good theology says we are wretched sinners who have sinned against a, a holy God. We are in desperate need of a Savior. Good theology says Jesus, through his death, burial, and resurrection, he gives his grace to people who, who will never deserve. We will never deserve his grace. What we deserve is to be on the assembly line of hell. That's what we deserve. That's what good theology teaches. But listen, we have the opportunity through Jesus Christ to have eternal life in Him in heaven. We have that opportunity. If we confess He is Lord, and we repent of our sins, repent of our wicked ways that we sin against God, we can have eternal life. Good theology is all about the works of our great Savior, Jesus Christ. Do you see that? That's what good theology is. Good theology points at Jesus. It's not about me. It's not about you. It's only about Him. As we transition into our time of the Lord's Supper this morning, all of us, every week here at North Bullet, we take the Lord's Supper. Uh, we do this in remembrance of Him. We do this in remembrance of what Jesus did on the cross for us by dying, that we can have a life through Him. Uh, we take this every Sunday. Uh, we take the bread, which significates his, his body shed for us, His blood shed for us. And we also will be taking up an offering after that to use, to glorify God, to all the things that He has called us to do, to support missionaries, to support this church. We do all those things. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we come here this morning, we know that we have to rightfully handle Your Word of God, Father, to properly handle it. Because it all points to you. All things that you've done for us, we don't deserve any of it. But you are so loving and graceful and showing us mercy when we don't deserve it. That we can have a life through you, Father. We're so thankful. I see these things in your precious name. Amen.